Welcome to Holy Human, where we bring disability and neurodiversity to the pulpit. I'm Katie. And I'm Serena. And today we are studying Come Follow Me. We'll be looking at Doctrine and Covenants sections 46 through 48, and then 49 through 50, two weeks worth. Trigger warning for people who are neurodivergent within this episode. We talk about gaslighting with spiritual experiences and gaslighting within hearing voices or seeing things that neurotypical people claim are not there. We would like to remind you that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, which is a collective of independent, interesting podcasts that promote thoughtful, engaging inquiry into all aspects of Mormon history, arts, and culture. Another podcast from the Dialogue Podcast Network is the Dialogue Book Report. Dialogue Book Report number 10, which was just released, included the best of 2020 creative nonfiction and poetry within or near LDS culture and literature. There is a bunch of memoirs that they discussed and a bunch of different poetry collections, and it's quite comprehensive. They have more than 10 in each section, so Mm. it was really good in terms of like things that I want to add to my own book list. Nice. Nothing like adding to a book list, am I right, Serena? (laughs) Oh, yep, 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 yep. So in case you didn't see our post, Holy Human has created a book list as a resource for people to find different literatures that talk about disability culture and life and theory. Yes. And history. (laughs) And also, if you are unable to support us on Patreon, you can support us through this book list. There's a lot of books on there that we know we need to read, but we haven't been able to purchase for ourselves. So if you would like to go to that list and purchase, you are welcome to. The way we have it set up is through Amazon. You would purchase it for us and it would just send it directly to us. You can access it by going to our social medias. We posted about the book list on our Instagram and our Facebook, and our Facebook does have a link directly to it. Or you can go directly to amazon.com. Right when you go to the main screen of the website, there should be a tab toward the top right that says account and lists. If you click find a list or registry and then click custom gift list, And then there's a search bar. It says find a custom gift list. Just type in Holy Human and then it'll pop up. It'll say Holy Human podcast book list by Holy Human. If you have trouble finding it, just email us or DM us, send us a message on Facebook, whatever, and we can send you the link directly as well. And you can look through the list. There's books ranging from like $5 to $100. There's about 58 books on there, right, Serena? <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. We have, we've gathered a really good list on books about disability and neurodivergence. So be sure to check that out and support us if you can. And reason why this is so important for us in terms of accessibility is because you can't just walk into Barnes & Noble or a bookstore and say, hey, where's your disability section? They don't have one. Like, I've tried to do that, and they directed me to, like, psychology section mm-hmm. or, like, sociology section or, mm-hmm. like, the anti-racism section, which are all great, important things. 
but I wanted a section that talked about disability theory and history, and they just don't have it. Yeah, and it's a shame because there is a lot of really good books out there. There is. I actually, you told me that story, so I went to a local bookstore that's in Provo, they had a psychology section and they pointed us to it and said, okay, this is like, you'll find what you're looking for here. And like every book we pulled off the shelf, every single one was ableist. We pulled it off and it's like how to overcome your ADHD or <sighs> stuff about overcoming things and how to, I don't know. It was all about like working through your disability and becoming better despite it. And I'm like, Ugh. And we like looked up a couple authors, all of them were white and the ones that we looked up were all able-bodied, like they were just doctors studying disability, which is really important, but where's all the books written by disabled people? When we created this list, we're talking a lot about this, but we put a lot of thought into this list and we tried to pull from disabled people writing their own stories and gathering history and Not 100% of them are, but 100% of them are referring to disabled people and aware of the conversations that are going on within these communities and respectful of it. Yes. And the more books we have, the more we can read and the better we're able to serve all of you as our audience. I don't know. I'm trying to take those books, which are from a secular mindset, which is not a bad thing, but kind of bring it into a Mormon discussion, you know, and say, how does this relate to our faith? Yeah. Or vice versa, because those books won't do that. So we have to have that source and then bring it in ourselves and hope that we are raising questions and offering context that's valuable to all of you. So Yeah, because disabled people and neurodiverse people have always existed in church history and yes. in gospel history so this will help us bring those connections in as well yes okay okay well let me do a summary of our we are talking about doctrine and covenants today not just books (laughs) (laughs) again we're looking at 46 through 50 those sections 46 focuses on spiritual gifts mostly but it also shares the fact that everyone can come into our church meetings and sacrament meetings I guess before that wasn't the practice, so this clarifies and establishes that. Section 47, John Whitmer is now the church historian. Section 48, Joseph asks the Lord about getting land for the saints, and the Lord answers. 49 is a convert who was a former member of the Shakers, which is a religion. There's revelation given to him about his past beliefs, and he was also told to go back to his former congregation and teach them about our gospel. And then section 50 talks about visions and revelations. Okay, 46, I feel like we can't not say this, 46 verse 3, it's a commandment to never cast anyone out of meetings, Mm -hmm. and just a reminder that... (laughs) Being exclusive of people is casting people out of meetings. If you aren't welcoming every single person in your congregation with open arms and trying to understand them as a person and accepting them for who they are, then then you're casting them out in a way. You don't have to strictly cast someone out to cast them out in spirit. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just because I think it's important that people know the context of the opinions that we share Are you referring to anything in particular when you say that? Like, can you give me an example? Well, I have a couple different examples. Like, here's some things that come to mind. Just not befriending people because they're weird or different Mm -hmm. than you. 
or being nervous to get to know someone because they're from a different culture. I think it's also choosing, uh, let's see, social norms or comfort over people. Mm -hmm. Like if people say things that make you uncomfortable or if they get too emotional or upset in a meeting or confused and they're crying, don't cast them out in your heart. Make sure you show love for them over like the awkwardness of a situation or whatever. Like take people seriously, respect people. And I don't know, because I feel like if people get really personal in church, some people are just like, oh, let's move on. You know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. We see that sometimes when people give talks, because in this church, we have people from the congregation who give talks and kind of there's like a, I don't know if I'd call it a movement, but there's certainly like an encouragement, I guess, to keep your talks focused on doctrine. Don't tell too many stories. But um, I disagree with that. I think the stories are how people are interpreting and applying the doctrine. And so. I don't know if this has ever been said anywhere, but it's kind of the understanding of everyone that if someone does say something that the church would disagree with, the bishop can stand up and be like, no, just to clarify this is what the church believes, blah, 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 mm-hmm. which it's important to clarify that just so people can know what the church is teaching, right? Just so you're not like yeah. misunderstanding what the church's stance is on things and then you can make your decision from there. But I wonder how much that affects how open and honest people can feel when they're speaking at the pulpit or in testimony meeting. And that's hard, you know, people yeah. should be able to commune with God and share their experiences openly and lovingly with people and be received with love. Yeah, there's definitely pressure to conform yeah. to like an expected range of mm-hmm. beliefs and experiences when you're talking in church. Yeah. And I find that very hostile to neurodivergent experiences. Yeah. And disabled ones too. Does your mind go to anything else? Oh, I was just thinking of Natasha's helper sex communication. Oh, yeah. Or people being turned away because they're dressed immodest or things like that. Yeah. I don't know. There's a lot of different ways to take this verse. It's a hard scripture to live up to, but I am also glad that it's in there as an ideal to live up to. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's so funny. I feel like a lot of these sections are full of scriptures like that where they present an ideal but nowadays, and even later on in the scriptures and in the context, like they don't live up to their own words. So I'm like, yay, like, I'm glad you said that. But at the same time, you're not doing it, you know? Um, Yeah. So I mean, if a person, like we've said before, if a person absolutely needs a service animal, and the bishop is just like, yeah, we're not going to do that. That's casting someone out of a meeting. Yeah. And that's, it literally says the word commandment in this scripture. So let's make sure that we're doing that. Good one. I bet Derek will have a heyday with this because he has his commandment enumeration project. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, That's right. That's really cool that he's doing that. Also, verse seven. Oh, no, it's very ableist. (laughs) I'm going to read that. Yeah. But you're commanded in all things to ask of God who giveth liberally and that which the spirit testifies unto you. Even so, I would that ye should do in all holiness of heart walking uprightly before me, considering the end of your salvation, doing all things with prayer and thanksgiving, that ye may not be seduced by evil spirits or doctrines of devils or the commandments of men. 
for some are of men and others of devils. <laughs> yeah, so this is kind of what I go into a lot in the research that I did in preparation for this. It's really, really prevalent in section 50. So I kind of want to wait until we get to that, if that makes sense. But just note that we will be talking about this. So let me say too, section 46 and section 50 are really closely connected. If you don't mind, can I give some history on section 46 and then it will probably blend into 50 and then you can share your thoughts. Okay. Are you prepared for me to like rant this early on in the episode? Oh, yes. Because I have a lot of of information on this too. (laughs) Okay. Go ahead. Give us context. Okay. So a lot of the saints, not all of them, moved to Ohio And there were hundreds of converts there, and all of them were bringing in their cultures and their own spirituality into meetings. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Come Follow Me does not navigate this very well. Come (laughs) Follow Me says people were having, quote, unusual expressions of worship. Mm. Spiritual manifestations is what it was called at the time. So... Come Follow Me talks about it a little vaguely, but if you look at the Come Follow Me, it connects you to further readings and it connects you to Revelations in Context, which is a collection of information put out by the church about church history. Revelations in Context says that these spiritual manifestations were happening in meetings, including sacred meeting, and there were people that were jumping around, hitting their heads, and then falling to the ground as if they were dead. And then when they awoke, they would say what visions they saw while they were unconscious. People were behaving like, quote unquote, baboons. People were pretending to, yeah, it literally says that people were, it says that quoting someone who said that when it was happening at the time. Okay. Yeah. Revelations in context doesn't just say that, by the way. Sorry. Clarification. Okay. People were pretending to wield the sword of Laban. People were scooting on the floor and slithering like snakes. So this was happening at times during sacrament meetings when people were feeling the spirit so strong, that's what they would do. They were bringing in different spiritual understandings and cultures into the meetings. Uh, Unfortunately... Okay, in this section, let me just read this while it's describing the quote-unquote unusual expressions of worship that people were participating in. It says, a man known as Black Pete, a former slave and new convert, brought his experience with the slave shout tradition, including perhaps the practice of speaking in tongues. And then it goes on to share other things that people were doing in meetings that were unusual. And I... Good for him. Yeah, so multiple feelings on this. Good for him for bringing his own history and culture into meetings. I think it's unfortunate that Revelations in Context structures this section this way because it's sharing like these different ways that people would have spiritual moments and it's like demonizing them. And then it shares Mm -hmm. like this black person's culture and history. And then it goes back to demonizing spiritual manifestations Mm. and it kind of clumps that in together and i'm like he's bringing in his culture like why why are we demonizing that also like mm, black pete like can we not find his his actual name like that is i don't know if he called himself that but that hurts my heart that that's how he's referred to and there's no other information about him in revelations in context 
Do you have any, yeah, do you have any thoughts that from what I've shared so far? From what <laughs> you shared, um a lot. Well, first of all, I will say that unusual expressions of emotion are kind of my thing. <laughs> as an autistic person and as a cataplectic and as a borderline, all of these things contribute to me expressing my emotions in very physical ways. It is very unique, (laughs) even within other autistic people and other people with borderline personality disorder and other people who have cataplexy, like we express our emotions very differently. We process them and feel them very differently Mm -hmm. from each other, as well as from neurotypical people. So when I feel emotions, I cannot keep from falling down. If I'm feeling the spirit, or at least what I think is the spirit, I literally fall down. You know, this is not me being dramatic. Yeah. This is not me asking for attention. This is my body reacting to what it thinks is a dream. And so it sends out the chemicals to paralyze me temporarily because it doesn't want me to hurt myself as I'm dreaming. That's literally what happens in cataplexy. Anyway. (laughs) Oh, you never explained it that way. Wow. That's really interesting. Yeah. It's related to autoimmune issue with a certain chemicals that regulate sleep and dreaming. And then the fact that when I get really excited, I need to stim, you know, Mm -hmm. I need to jump up and down or I need to wave my hands or I need to like vocalize it by like not screaming, but like just exclaiming. Yeah. When I get really excited, I need to move. I need to shout, you know, to me, that's just part of my neurotype. So I can't help but feel like if I were living back then, I would be included in these, quote, unusual expressions of spirituality. That bothers me. And then also just the fact that it's like so blatantly racist and like... Even in other, like, cultures, what is neurotypical is different from what is neurotypical in America. Does that make sense? Like, not everybody wants to just sit still in sacrament meeting and, like, silently cry and, like, suppress their, like, expression of emotions after someone finishes, like, a beautiful musical number. In other churches, they would snap, they would clap, they would say amen, you know? Yeah, and actually, for people who don't know, when it mentions, quote, Black Pete in this Revelations in Context, it says that he included the slave shout for people who don't know what that is. It's also called the ring shout, and it's a transcendent religious ritual first practiced by African slaves in the West Indies and the United States, in which worshippers move in a circle while shuffling and stomping their feet and clapping their hands. Despite the name, shouting aloud is not an essential part of the ritual, I guess. Mm -hmm. But people brought that into, obviously, the United States and into their own churches. More information from, I got this information from (laughs) bittersouthener.com. I love them. (laughs) Their purpose on their site is to uncover the American South in all its truth and complexity and in process break stereotypes about the region and its people by pushing out important, difficult, uncomfortable, irreverent, witty, addictive, and always enjoyable stories that turn myths about the South inside out. They share the story about the McIntosh County Shouters, which is a group that incorporates elements of the religious slave shout or ring shout into dance. They write that the ring shout is also related to African-derived traditions in 
Brazil, Cuba, and many other locations in the African diaspora, but it still happens in some black churches to this day, and some non-black Pentecostal churches also still do a type of ring shout. Anyway, that's what we mean when we say, quote-unquote, Black Pete, was bringing in his own history and culture into the church, and how (laughs) including that and demonizing it in this section is wrong. But then also... You talking about how sometimes people's movements or like when they're stimming, it's seen as different. Mm-hmm. After listing spiritual gifts, it says in Moroni ten eighteen, every good gift cometh of Christ. If moving a certain way instead of sitting still and being quiet helps you to feel mm-hmm. the spirit, then it's of Christ. <gasps> yeah, It's a good thing. And yeah. also if you read the New Testament when it talks about spiritual gifts, it's in 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 12. So it kind of introduces spiritual gifts in verse 4. And the way it says it is, now there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. And it uses the word oh. diversities of gifts and diversities a couple times in this section. And I was like, hey, look, diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. Like we can have diversities of experiences, but it's the same spirit that's affecting us. And mm, once people understand that, we'll actually follow that commandment that we talked about at the beginning, not to cast people out of meetings. Yeah. We'll be so much more inclusive and so much more understanding of our brothers and sisters and non-binary folk. We'll understand how to minister better. And it's all right there. And I don't know. I just love finding these little like sweet snacks in the scriptures that just like (laughs) – Make me feel like I'm a part of this and I'm here in the scriptures and people like me are here in the scriptures and that we're connected to this gospel and it's right there for everyone to see. And you just have to think about it and be aware of our situations and circumstances and lives enough to see it. Oh, I love that. I'm really glad you shared that. And like what you're saying about how people who are expressing their spirituality and experiences differently and asking ourselves or even asking them how it feels it could feel good to them you know and if it feels good like verse 23 in section 50 and that which doth not edify is not of god and is of darkness verse 24 right after it is that which is of god is light and he that receiveth light and continueth in god receiveth more light and that light groweth brighter and brighter until the perfect day You can look at it as people expressing themselves naturally and in a way that is aligned with their neurotype and their understanding of the world. That's light to me. Do you get what I'm saying there? Oh, 100%. And to build upon what you're saying, how can we say that one thing isn't light and one thing is Mm -hmm. when we don't understand how a person feels light, how a person feels the spirit? Like if someone's neurodivergent versus neurotypical, like how can a neurotypical person say like this, 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 and this is what the spirit feels like. Anything else is not the spirit. You know, like, Mm, how can we mm. say that? We can't because we don't understand. Yes, I love this discussion. This is probably going to be one of my favorite episodes. Yes. (laughs) Yes. So one thing that I wanted to really explore is the concept of, okay, I'm using this word as me not liking it. So put this in quotes in your mind. The difference between like craziness or like, spirituality or the spiritual moment, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. What's the difference? 
one thing that is commonly represented as quote unquote crazy is psychotic experiences or neurodivergent people who have psychosis. So really quickly, let me define that. This definition comes from Rose Parker. I don't want to assume they're pronouns, so I'm just going to use they, them. But they run a psychosis positivity Instagram account, which is amazing. It's such good content. Yeah. Psychosis and schizophrenia often go together and they have schizophrenia. And they are also studying psychology and have done amazing research. And I don't know, it, it's really heartening to see someone who has schizophrenia, who is neurodivergent in a way that's often like really shamed by society, succeed in an academic world. But anyway, definition of psychosis that they give, psychosis is a symptom category that can appear in a broad array of disorders affecting the brain. Psychosis stems from multiple brain regions and neurotransmitters, and there are multiple types of psychosis, ranging from a neurodevelopmental form in schizophrenia slash affective to stress-induced varieties found in the brief episode disorders. Our knowledge of the condition continues to grow and there is much we still don't know. That's how we define psychosis. And I'm sticking with that because this is someone who has experienced it. And I think it's really important for people to look to the source as the authority, not to doctors, but to people who are actually experiencing it. Now, I found this article that is in Psychology Today that asks, is it psychosis or a spiritual emergency? Ooh. (laughs) Here we go. (laughs) Here we go. Um, And this is written by Diana Robb. That's Robb, R-A-A-B, who is an American author, poet, lecturer, and educator. She has a PhD Transpersonal psychology is the type of psychology that she's talking about here. Anyway, in this article, first of all, there's some things that I thought were still kind of ableist because it's still like attached a negative connotation to psychosis, but it was still way better than the Come Follow Me manual and like the actual scriptures. And it's interesting because she's saying that spiritual emergencies slash psycho-spiritual crises can be classified as peak experiences, past life experiences, channeling with spirit guides, kundalini experiences, I'm not familiar with that term, dark and night possessions, near-death experiences, UFO encounters, or drug and alcohol addictions. It seems that a cultural basis might determine whether an experience is labeled psychotic or spiritual. Yeah. For example, individuals such as shamans, prophets, spiritual teachers, saints, or luminaries may be considered brilliant because they transcend the human experience. Yet others having similar experiences might be labeled psychotic, even though both groups might benefit from or become transformed by the experience. Yes, yes. And it's not surprising considering how demonized disability was treated back then that we have these records and understandings now of what happened in 1831 when all of this was happening. Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh. And she actually references Christina and Stanislav Grof, which are – actually couldn't – she references Christina mainly, but – she says that Stanislav is Christina's husband, but I couldn't find Christina when I Googled her, which is annoying. So I'm glad mm. that she's like putting 
the woman first. <laughs> but it's annoying that I can't find any information on her outside of this article. But Stanislav Grov was a Czech-born psychiatrist, one of the principal developers of transpersonal psychology and research into the use of non-ordinary states of consciousness for the purposes of exploring, healing, and obtaining growth and insights into the human psyche. Now, just a little caveat. This is a white man. He's Czech, so most likely white, integrating Western concepts with Eastern concepts and knowledge. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So I want people to take his words with a grain of salt because he's writing this line between cultural appropriation and cultural appreciation, mm -hmm. which I don't want to give a definitive opinion on whether or not he did that well, but I will say that he has both received awards and recognitions for his work, but he's also been heavily criticized in his home country for, quote, non-scientific psychology. <laughs> wow, that's interesting. Which is important to mention in the context of ethnocentrism. So mm -hmm. anyway, he distinguishes between two modes of consciousness. And I'm getting kind of nerdy here, so bear with me. The hylotropic consciousness and the holotropic consciousness. The hylotropic mode, with a Y, relates to, quote, the normal everyday experiences of consensus reality, end quote. And the holotropic experience with an O has to do with states which aim towards wholeness and the totality of existence. It is characterized by non-ordinary states of consciousness such as meditative, mystical, or psychedelic experiences. According to Grof, contemporary psychiatry often categorizes these non-ordinary states as psychotic. And so his whole shtick, his whole research is like, exploring these different states of consciousness, which is really interesting. Anyway, the spiritual emergency, that's what I was talking about. So in her article, Diana Robb says, Stanislav and Kristina Grov have described the spiritual emergency as a crisis often resulting in intense emotions, unusual thoughts and behaviors, and perceptual changes. This crisis often involves a spiritual component, such as experiences of death and rebirth, unity with the universe, and encounters with powerful beings. Such crises bring about the potential for profound psychological and spiritual change, but often appear to be similar to psychotic disorders. The experience of a spiritual emergency, if managed and treated under supervision, and this is Diana speaking, can therefore be life-changing and offer the individual a deeper sense of passion, wisdom, love, and zest for life, and an expanded worldview and overall psychosomatic health. Psychosomatic meaning the relationship between the mind and the body. Hmm. And like I said, this is an article in Psychology Today, and it seems like she's mostly addressing other clinicians and therapists. So she goes on to say, in the ideal scenario, the therapist should, as much as possible, normalize the experience meaning these spiritual emergencies, and express it in an educational and transformative way. This is preferable than making the client feel abnormal. It's also beneficial to accentuate what may be learned from the situation. The experience should be viewed as a container or opportunity for healing, transformation, or growth rather than something that is detrimental. In summary, the primary difference between psychosis and spiritual emergency has more to do with the diagnostician and the suggested treatment than anything else. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Why are you saying wow, Katie? 
<laughs> I just, wow. I think that <laughs> I'm sure it happens so much more when someone has an invisible disability, but I feel connected to that as someone with a visible disability, just because people assume that their experience is the dominant experience and that they know everything and that they're normal. And then when they see mm-hmm. someone with a different experience, they treat it as abnormal when our experience is just as normal to us. You know what I mean? So yeah, the way that was worded, I feel like it was worded really well to say like people who have these experiences are legit. They're their experiences mm-hmm. and trying to categorize it can say more about the person who's categorizing it rather than mm-hmm. the person who's experiencing it. Yeah, I just I agree. And if we look at section 50, it's like full of crappy things about neurodivergent people. Verses two and three says, behold, verily I say unto you that there are many spirits which are false spirits, which have gone forth in the earth, deceiving the world. And also Satan hath sought to deceive you that he might overthrow you. Like, oh my gosh, these spirits are false. They're from Satan. You're being undermined by satanic spirits. This is what happens when you don't include disability and neurodivergence in church history. Like Mm -hmm. there's a statement about what's happening and then we gain an understanding from the prophet and from revelation about how to apply that to everyone. But if you don't understand the person themselves and why they're acting the way they act, then there can be a lot of assumptions there, right? To claim that someone is experiencing the devil, that it's the devil that's doing this. I personally believe that like dark spirits and the devil does have power on the earth. I believe that, but I think it's a very fine line in saying that something's of the devil and something's not because we don't know what people are going through. We don't know their backgrounds and how they experience the world and everything. It's a shame that there isn't a full on, I mean, we're trying our best to do it, but there isn't a full on like deep dive on disability and neurodivergence to bring more understanding into this rather than just labeling things as like dark spirit versus the way God wants things. And it just further others people. I found a book that delves into this, actually. It's one of those, probably someone's dissertation. It's Hearing Voices, comma, Demonic and Divine, colon, Scientific and Theological Perspectives. (laughs) I'm saying this like I'm dictating it to Siri. (laughs) (laughs) So this whole book talks about this kind of thing and especially focuses on voices, which does it mention voices in, in section 50? Oh, it does. It talks about, well, kind of like in verses 30 through 34, it talks about if a spirit presents itself to you, right? Mm, what you should do. Yeah, right. And so 31, it says, wherefore it shall come to pass if you behold a spirit manifested that you cannot understand and you receive not that spirit you shall ask of the father in the name of jesus and if he give not unto you that spirit then you may know that it is not of god and it shall be given unto you power over that spirit and you shall proclaim against that spirit with a loud voice that it is not of god anyway so it's basically saying well if you encounter a spirit and i think you can say a voice as well because 
some people hear voices. And there's different ways that people experience these things. But then you're supposed to ask Jesus if it's from the Father. And if not, then you need to cast it out. But you have to cast it out very carefully. Can I just throw this in really quick that I think yeah. it's funny that we say like hearing a still small voice and that's like such a big part of the gospel. <laughs> but if you say hearing voices or I heard a voice, like people yeah. are like, what? What's wrong with you? You know? like <laughs> Yes. It is hypocritical and ableist for the church or prophets or church members or even the scriptures, these scriptures that we're reading, these sections 46 through 50, to label some spiritual manifestations as from God and others as from the devil or, quote, Mm -hmm. mental illness. But yeah, this book basically is saying theology is fundamentally concerned with listening to voices especially in relation to the Abrahamic faith. So that's Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, where the voice of God directly or indirectly plays a significant part in the creation and content of Holy Scripture. It is also true in other monotheistic traditions and in Eastern religion, with the possible exception of Buddhism, where a voice is heard in the absence of any visible speaker within most faith traditions, the possibility therefore arises that it might be the voice of God or at least of an angelic or spiritual being, which is what we're talking about in these verses, right, in 30 through 34 in section 50. As part of a multimodal visionary experiences, voices may also be heard as spoken by a visible but not material spiritual presence. According to some attempts to chart the history of such phenomena, visions and voices up until the 19th century were generally understood as a spiritual or mystical experiences and thus veridical. I think that means like verifiable or like valid. Coinciding with reality. Yeah, so they're saying that up until the 1800s, visions and voices were generally understood as spiritual or mystical and therefore valid. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It's so funny because we talk about ableism in Joseph Smith's day and like how they're more ableist, you know, and how they treated Lucy Harris, you know. But this is saying the opposite in terms of like visions. People were more validating visions because they just assumed that it was spiritual, which in one sense you can be like, okay, well, maybe what if those people actually needed mental health help? But in the other sense, I feel like that's very validating Because this scripture is, instead of doing that, just turns away from it and says, oh, you're satanic, right? Right. That's why I really appreciate Joseph Smith's reaction to all of this commotion that was going on with spiritual manifestations. When this was happening, people went to Joseph and they're like, what do we do? And instead of judging and being like, oh, wow, this is a problem, he just asked the Lord. And then the Lord said, manifestations of the spirit are real. They're gifts of the spirit. And then we have that whole section of gifts on the spirit, which is really great. Revelations of context goes into this a little bit. But if you think about Joseph Smith's own life, he had spiritual manifestations, gifts of the spirit, however you want to call it. He had unique spiritual experiences. I think that's why he was better able to approach this situation. And In my mind, I compare it to like when you get married to someone and you have your whole life where you have, you know, traditions around holidays and you have ways that you work through your emotions and ways that you understand stuff and you grew up in a certain neighborhood and a certain area. You're a different person than your spouse. And then when you combine, you kind of have to figure out like, okay, how are we going to put 
our own unique ways of how we grew up, how are we going to put it together and then have a family? What kind of traditions do we want? What kind of culture do we want to include? How, how do we have fun? Things like that. So I feel like when converts joined the church, that happened a little bit where there's all these different cultures that are trying to come together and they're trying to form a new church and form traditions and establish the organization of the church. And in this particular situation of spiritual manifestations and gifts of the spirit, it looks like some of what was going on was tossed out. Some of it was included and some of it was added upon. Going back to Pete, it kind of says that he's the one that started doing the interpretation of tongues and speaking in tongues. And that is a gift of the spirit that's listed in section 46. I think Joseph did a pretty good job of dealing with it, but it seems like a lot... I think that it was really cool of him to not just be like, okay, here's what we're going to do. He paused on it. He reflected. He took it to the Lord. I mean, if you compare it to gifts of the Spirit talked about in the Book of Mormon and the New Testament, Mm -hmm. if you compare it to other scriptures, it's similar but not exactly the same. It's not like he was like, I'll take it to God and then just quoted 1 Corinthians, you know. So I think that that's cool. I don't think he can speak for everyone's experiences, though, and in that way. Taking it to the Lord was the best thing to do, but I still think that that could still disclude some people's true ways that they were able to experience spiritual experiences. Yeah. I don't know. You're reading it a very different way from what I did. Sure. Which is not a bad thing. I feel like this has been a pattern in the sections of Doctrine and Covenants where I just feel like the more time that goes by, the more I'm like how much of this is Joseph's opinion and how much of it is really from God. And you're describing a Joseph who like pondered and prayed and received revelation and you believe that he received this from God. Am I correct in saying that, that you believe he, he, this is God speaking in these moments? I mean, I don't think that that happens 100% when the prophet speaks, and I think that we can use our own spirituality and gift of the Holy Ghost to understand better when a prophet speaks Mm -hmm. as a prophet. But I believe because of his past experiences, it makes sense to me that that's what he did because he was seen almost as a person like this, that he used his spirituality in unique ways that other people would be like, oh, that's weird. Why do you do that? That's fake or whatever. They're they're lying. Considering his background, I think he would be more considerate of these people and honestly try to take it to the Lord and receive revelations. But again, that can't be 100%. You don't live in other people's bodies. You don't know what they're experiencing. I can see what you're saying. I guess I can see both sides of it. I can see it as... Joseph Smith being kind of a icon, for lack of a better word, of neurodivergency mm-hmm. and spirituality and celebrating the connection between the two mm-hmm. and exploring it, at least with the fact that his first vision and the fact that he was translating the plates through revelation. And we've talked about this in our episode of Visions, Validations, and Darkness. Mm-hmm. I believe we talked about mm-hmm. that. So I can see it that way, but I also... I just really don't like the fact that these sections demonize other people having spiritual experiences. And it really, really does. And to me, it's kind of a betrayal that this neurodivergent person, at least I'm I'm going to call Joseph Smith neurodivergent 
because he was experiencing visions. Anyway, that I find it almost a betrayal that someone like that would turn around and put boundaries on other people's spiritual mm. experiences. Yeah, I see. And I'm like, I'm glad he still took it to God, kind of like what he did in the first vision, like the pattern of revelation that we talk about all the time in the church of pondering on it and then taking the question to the Lord instead of just making a decision without asking or without thinking about it deeply. Like, I'm glad that theoretically he did that, but I really don't like the answer that he got. And I don't know if I can believe that it's 100% from God. I feel like Mm. more than 50% of it is him trying to keep control in a church that's growing very rapidly. And maybe he's a little bit like, intimidated by this. He probably doesn't know how to handle these people who are having these diverse spiritual experiences. And I think it's okay to acknowledge that because it's just, there's some pretty harsh language in here about neurodivergent people. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I see what you mean on that. I think it's difficult to put a hard line and say like, only the prophet can do this because personal revelation exists. And that is... Mm -hmm obvious and it's taught today. It was taught in the Come Follow Me from last week. And like you mentioned verse 31 in section 50, I really liked that one in that like it kind of goes into that where if you have a spiritual manifestation that you can't understand, you Mm -hmm. ask God to understand, I guess, and then the spirit will guide you. I think that's all we can do really as individuals. There's different ways to look at it. I think as individuals, like Some people call it following your gut. In the church, we call it following the spirit, like feeling prompted. Mm -hmm. But if you're faced with something and you're not sure how to react to it, it's good to be introspective and like try to follow the spirit on it, follow your gut, especially when you're dealing with spiritual moments like this. Well, this verse in particular makes me think of when we shared something in our stories It was relating to the temple and access issues, I think. And a very astute follower of ours reminded us that temple experiences and like, quote, revelatory experiences or just places that are very full of, quote, the spirit can actually be really triggering for people who have psychosis or schizophrenia or dissociative identity disorder, like not for everybody. I think it would be wrong to make that blanket statement like that, but it can be very triggering because it's so hard to tell the difference between what's from God and what's your own brain Mm -hmm. and what's from the devil. And like this whole thing is, I don't know if I've mentioned this before on the podcast, is actually why I ended up getting fake married. I say fake because I got an annulment, so it was never legally valid. Because at the time, I could not distinguish between what was the spirit of God speaking to me versus what was my own brain versus what was my depression and anxiety and what I know now to be my splitting from borderline personality disorder and what were my own desires. It was all tangled up and what I thought was a prompting from God turned out just to be my own mental illness and trauma informing my decisions and it led me to a situation with that ex of mine that was very unhealthy and it caused me to question a lot of things in the church. I mean, I'm not going to say I'm glad that happened, but I don't know where I would be if that hadn't happened because I I learned to 
think a lot more critically because of it. Hmm. But yeah, so my point is that that's really hard for some people. Now others, can I share something else I found that's really exciting to me? (sighs) I love this. So the (laughs) same Instagrammer, Psychosis Positivity, they have this seven minute podcast episode all about their experiences with religion and schizophrenia, which I thought was fascinating. Mm. So they said that there's a lot of stigma surrounding spirituality and schizophrenia and spiritual experiences with psychosis. They say, I believe that part of the right to autonomy and self-determination includes the right to your own spiritual beliefs and that psychotic people have the right to be religious and practice their religion how they please. I think that just because we have psychosis, that does not exclude us from being religious and having spiritual experiences. I don't think our spirituality is any less valid than that of non-psychotic people. And claiming we are less spiritual is just another way of marginalizing us. Mm. I think this is especially prominent in Christian and New Age communities. I am a Christian mystic. I've had some experiences that I consider to be religious visions and not psychosis. They are saying, I can distinguish the difference, right? I find that my visions regarding like spiritual ones are very different in character to my psychotic experiences and that I can tell the difference. And I've spoken to other people who feel the same. And I think that if you have religious experiences and psychosis, you develop the ability to tell the difference. For me, religious visions are very light and soft in terms of emotion. They feel welcoming and open. Whereas me experiencing schizophrenic nightmares are dark and heavy or a hallucination can feel very oppressive and unwelcoming. And at the end there, I was kind of paraphrasing because transcription software is not very good. (laughs) That's a beautiful experience though. Wow. I just, I'm so glad that I went looking for that because for me, it was hard to tell. But at this time, I wasn't diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, you know, and so it was hard for me to tell. And so I think it's super important for people to get the mental health or perspectives that they need in order to build a framework that helps them to understand themselves and empowers them. Wow. Yeah. Instead of just staying confused and grappling with these questions from only a spiritual perspective. Because although, yes, like you said, verse 31 can be helpful. Like the point of that verse is to say, oh, how can I tell if it's from God or if it's not? I think it's dangerous to only rely on that. You know, I think it's really important to have that perspective from current psychology and psychiatry about what's going on in your own brain. And I say this as someone who like distrusts doctors, but. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, instead of just accepting the stigma of like mental health always equals darkness and is always Mm -hmm. like the devil trying to, you know, misguide you, like gaining a better understanding and using resources to understand yourself. What you're talking about is literally in this section two in verses 23 and 24, that which does not edify is not of God and is darkness. <sighs> anyway, it's just, there's so much I could talk about on this. I'm just going to say, it seems like from the psychosis and like schizophrenic communities that I have found, these people who are diagnosed and are speaking out about it on social media, they don't find any shame in saying this is something that I live with and it's imbalanced in my brain and I don't think it's evil. And I think we can be really quick to take verse 23 and say, well, my mental disorder or whatnot 
it feels like darkness and so therefore it must be from Satan. And no, it could just be your brain is working differently because you've been traumatized or because you were born that way genetically. That doesn't make you evil. That doesn't make you having an undue influence from Satan. Anyway, really quickly, section 46 talks about healing and like one gift to some it's given to have faith to be healed and to others it is given to have faith to heal yes, thank do, you. You, do you have something you want to say about that really quick i'm glad you pulled that up i meant to talk about that one again if you read just those verses it comes off like if you have faith you can be healed and if you have faith you can heal others and you can bring about miracles and then it seems like that's it and then it can mislead people if people don't understand mm-hmm. the grand picture and the teachings of like the will of God and aligning yourself with God. I appreciate that verse 30, not very far away from these verses. After all these spiritual gifts are listed, it says, he that asketh in the spirit asketh according to the will of God, wherefore it is done even as he asketh. So that does bring in that concept. Whereas some scriptures that do list like the faith to be healed just kind of skips over that idea. I think it comes down to like consent and what I want. Yeah. I don't know, like given to have faith to be healed. Like if I don't want it, then I'm not going to have any faith in it. You know what I mean? Like Right. And then the next verse is faith to heal. Like that verse 19 kind of insinuates consent. But then verse 20 is like, and to others, it is given to have faith to heal, which doesn't really consider if the person wants to be healed. True. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So contradicting views on consent and healing in there. And I guess to me, it doesn't bother me as much as it would have because I'm at a point in my disability identity where I don't want to be healed of my cataplexy and my autism and my, well, borderline. eh, eh, eh. I'm on the fence. (laughs) But like, I'm totally fine with having the gift of tongues and like the gift of prophecy. I claim those. You can you can have the gift of being healed, not you, you, but like someone else. Y'all can be healed. Uh, I'm just going to take prophecy and gift of tongues and interpretation of tongues and uh, maybe the one about wisdom and knowledge. Like those are the ones I want. <laughs> okay. So the last thing I want to share is actually a bunch of questions that this lady, well, I say lady, they have a female name. I shouldn't assume, but it's a scientific article and they didn't specify their pronouns. Hearing Voices, Demonic and Divine, Scientific and Theological Perspective. So that book that I referenced earlier, in their abstract or introduction to the book, they talk about why it's important to explore this. And they ask some rhetorical questions. So I just want to end the episode on these questions for our listeners. Why is it important to explore this? Because how may erroneous perceptions wrong perceptions, be distinguished from genuine spiritual experiences in the lives of those who report experiences of seeing visions and hearing voices. When someone claims to have heard the voice of God, should they be encouraged to treat this voice as divine, or should they be encouraged to question it as coming from somewhere else, perhaps from their own unconscious? If the voice claims to speak for the benefit of others or for the wider community or congregation, how should others respond? Secondly, and similarly, it is important for mental health professionals to have some way of distinguishing from, quote, normal religious experience and phenomena which are symptomatic of mental disorder. I put that in quotes. Is there a difference between religious hallucinations as a symptom of mental disorder and hearing the voice of God as a religious experience? 
Are the voices heard by biblical figures such as Moses, Jesus, or Paul of a similar kind to those reported by voice hearers today? How have voices featured and been understood within each tradition? What part do voices play in Christian religious experience? How may the growing scientific account of how such experiences come about be reconciled with the theology of revelation? What does it mean to say that a voice was God's voice? We're not answering these questions in this episode. We're just delving a little deeper, trying to bring a little bit more sources in and to say, hey, we need to address this. Much love to our friends who are psychotic or schizophrenic or experience a number of visions or voices or hallucinations. These are some of the most demonized and marginalized people, not even just in the church, but outside the church too. We need to reach out to them. We can't forget them in Mental Health Awareness Month. And we need to prioritize their voices when talking about them. I really hope that we can have more people on the podcast who have experienced these things. And well, let's end on that. Um, Thank you for listening or reading, everyone. Uh, We want to thank you for supporting our podcast while we do our best to support and inform everyone. Please donate to our Patreon, patreon.com slash holyhuman. That's W-H-O-L-Y-H-U-M-A-N. Follow us on Instagram and join the conversation at holyhuman. And email us if you would like to be involved. And please do. We want to have your perspective on our podcast, holyhumanpodcast at gmail.com. Also, thank you to Mativ for the intro and outro music. We accessed the song through freesound.org. Thanks, everyone.